Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, as we continue Dr. Neufeld's series, Life Lessons from David, the Man Who Would Be King, we'll discover an important principle of faith in a message entitled, Refusing to Run Ahead of God. So let's go back to the Bible. During an especially trying time in the work of China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor wrote these words to his wife. We have 25 cents and all the promises of God. You know, faith is a peculiar thing. It's easy to believe when your health is good and all men and women speak well of you and your bank account is full and you have no end of resources. But faith is trust in God. And faith is also exercised when all these other things fail. After all, I can't learn to trust God until God is all I have to trust in. But while faith is no more and no less than trust in God, faith also impacts our actions and our decision-making process. Faith waits on God, it relies on God, and is patient in God. Faith does not run ahead of God, but faith learns to be content in the timing of God, believing that God knows what's best, trusting that His wisdom is greater than ours. Today we will learn that faith needs time to mature. For those of us who long to live lives of significance, we will need to learn to trust God in areas where we have not trusted Him in the past. For David, his faith needed time to grow and progress. We might have thought of him as a man of great faith, for he was the only Israelite with a confidence to face Goliath. But as new challenges arose, which include the threat of the death from his own king, he found himself faltering. David learned what we all learn. We may be confident in God in one area of life, but hopelessly unbelieving in another area. And the hardships he was facing was exposing a great lack of confidence in God in a very particular area of his life. After four unsuccessful attempts on his life, David is on the run. He begins to panic, he makes mistakes, he sins, and he even humiliates himself. And today, as we continue our study in the life of David, we will see how, after David's sins and lack of trust in God, God does not throw him away or reject him. Instead, having exposed David's weaknesses, God intervenes to strengthen David's faith. And from his example, I hope to show how God strengthens our faith as well. I'm reading 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Now, here we notice several features. David is now constantly on the move. God has made it very clear that he is not to remain in the fortress of pagan kings. And so now we find David in the desert of Ziph, some 25 kilometers south of Bethlehem. And the strongholds the text speaks of are the easily defensible locations of topography right in that region. David deliberately chooses high ground, places where if he were attacked, he would have the advantage. He's always a brilliant tactician. And so he carefully chooses every hideout, every place where his men will spend the night, and every next location. But behind all this careful strategy is the steady hand of God. God has already decided that David will not fall into Saul's hand. God is acting to protect him, and David needs to trust God. 
And then something wonderful happens. For Samuel chapter 23, verses 15 to 18 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. Now, Horish, by the way, probably is a grove of trees where he could easily have hidden himself. And then the text goes on to say, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. We're not told how it was that Jonathan found David. Saul was looking for him, and and he had not found him, but perhaps it was God himself who had blinded Saul's eyes and had opened Jonathan's eyes to David's whereabouts. But however he managed it, Jonathan risks his life to find his old friend. Why? He wants to strengthen his hand in God. That means that Jonathan has no additional weapons for David, nor troops he can add to those David already has, nor does he have insider advice of Saul's strategy. He comes with only one purpose. He wants David to keep trusting in God, to be confident in his God, not to give way to fear, not to begin to doubt, but to face the future with the assurance that God is with him. And in that, Jonathan has three pieces of advice for David. Here's the first. Don't be afraid. God's promises don't fail. It's this, such an important word. Don't be afraid. You know, one of the greatest obstacles to faith is to allow fears and to allow an overripe imagination to visualize the worst possible scenario. Rather, what we should imagine is what God has promised us. Perhaps Jonathan reminded David of Moses' words in, in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. But whatever Jonathan told David must have given him courage. Now here's the second piece of advice from Jonathan. You shall be king over Israel. You know, many a Bible teacher has noticed how Jonathan, who would have been thought of as the heir to the throne, never fights with David over the future of the throne of Israel. Why is that? Because Jonathan trusts God, and he knows that God has revealed to him that he, as the king's son, is not destined for the throne. Long ago, Jonathan stopped desiring that which God had never given him. But of course, Jonathan did more. He had watched David and had come to believe that David was God's chosen man. And so his word to David is simple. Trust God's plan for your life. You know how precious those words must have been to David. How easy to doubt that which God had shown him. And by the way, to all of us who doubt that God has promised never to leave or forsake us, for all who doubt that God who began a good work in us will complete it. These are precious words. Trust God's plan for your life. And there's a third reason why Jonathan came to David. He wanted to be David's right-hand man, the man who stood next to the king. And in response, David makes a covenant with him that it will be so. The future king of Israel could not have had a better friend. Well, those of us who know the story will remember that tragically this was not to be. Jonathan would die alongside of his father in a horrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. God, in infinite wisdom, had decided that at his timing, he would take Jonathan home in his presence. But even though the two men wanted this last thing, and God in wisdom had said no, Jonathan's trip to see his friend would be life-transforming for David. It would inspire him to trust in God where he had failed in the past. 
You know, there are times in our walk with God when all of us need someone to encourage us to just keep trusting. You know, in my own life, there have been moments of crisis and times when I have felt a burden more than I thought I could bear. In those times, I have rarely walked alone. God has provided someone to encourage me when I thought I simply couldn't go on. And in the end, the passage simply says, Jonathan went home, mission accomplished. David was prepared to meet the new challenges now, not in reaction of fear or in dread, but in faith. And that's because in the very next verse, verse 19 says, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? You know, from this verse, we see that Saul had intelligence-gathering networks that included people from various tribes. The Ziphites were from the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, a people who should have stood with David. Indeed, they were historically associated with Caleb at the time of Joshua, and Caleb was known as a mighty man of faith. But these men were not. They had turned against David and were virtually begging Saul to come. They even said it was all their heart's desire that Saul should come down to kill David. If you go to Psalm 54, you'll find David's reaction to this horrible betrayal by his own countrymen. Verses 1 to 3 of that psalm, David simply says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. But the rest of the psalm provides hope. David is now confident. God is my helper, he said. I will give thanks, he says. He has delivered me, he says. There's now a confidence in David. Jonathan's time with him had renewed him. David is ready to trust in God as he had in the day when Goliath stood before him. Now, how important this is for all of us. If you failed and sinned and lost faith, it's not the end. Your failures don't have to define you from this day on. Allow a righteous believer to renew you, to encourage you afresh. You know, with renewed courage, David presses on. But now, because of the Ziphites, Saul is almost on top of David. Verses 26 and 27 say that Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came from Saul saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And just as it would seem that David is undone, Jonathan's words come true. My father, he said, will not find you. Indeed, God had intervened and by his providential hand has caused the Philistines to attack and Saul had to break off pursuit of David. And when we come back, we will see that God will continue to protect David as he will continue to protect us, his people. When we think of the person of David, we're often reminded of the great faith that he possessed, but rarely do we get an insight into his very real and tangible failure to trust God at some of the most critical times. Dr. Neufeld reminds us that this is a common weakness that we can all struggle with, but also that to be a man or a woman of God, of real faith, means acknowledging our sins and relying on others to help see us through. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld wraps up this story of what really stretched David's faith and the principles we can learn from it. This month, check out Truth in Life Today as Dr. John Neufeld teaches the Book of Romans. Nothing could be more important than understanding these critical principles of faith 
that the Apostle Paul brings to us. And remember, beginning this month, Truth and Life Today is being released on Vision TV Sundays at 12.30 Eastern. There's a lot more ahead as Dr. Neufeld invites pastors, authors, and Christian leaders into the studio to discuss some of the most important issues of life and faith. And remember, you can also listen to or view Truth and Life Today's current episode or one of its previous episodes by visiting backtothebible.ca, by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, some time ago I heard what I thought was a very humorous story. A pastor with a limited income had been praying to the Lord for furniture and he chanced upon a furniture truck from a store that had left a very nice couch by accident by their site. The workers had forgotten to load it. The pastor took this as a gift from God and took it home. But of course, it was no gift from God. It was a test of his faith and he failed. You know, whatever faith is, it cannot be divorced from ethics, from right and wrong. You can't claim God's provision and break his law. David would face this in the wilderness of En Gedi. Most of us know the account. Saul is back from pursuing the Philistines, and David is in the back of the very cave where Saul has come to relieve himself. David has 600 men. Saul has 3,000 men. And David is not seeking to fight Saul, but Saul is seeking to kill David. But here is Saul by himself and vulnerable. David's men see the hand of God in this. For Samuel 24, verse 4, we read, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, before we go on, I think we should take a note here that the Lord never said that he would give Saul into David's hand. Never. Indeed, the Lord had anointed Saul as king, and who was David to challenge the sovereign hand of God? But David, as we know, simply cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and then speaking to his men, he tells them, I'm reading verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. This verse needs to be understood. Here's what David knew. Saul was not on the throne by accident. He was chosen by the sovereign will of God, and even though Saul had become an evil man, David had to respect the choice of God. It's called faith, trust in God when things don't make sense. And this brings us to the point of this passage. From the perspective of David's men, God had delivered Saul into their hands. That for them was clear. But from David's perspective, God had brought Saul into the cave in order to test whether they, and David in particular, could respect God's sovereign choice and his leadership. I love what Gordon Ketty wrote, an open door is not in itself proof of God's will. Or listen to Arthur Pink, one stroke of his sword, says Pink, and David steps onto the throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell to the life of a hunted man. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease, and adulations and triumphs and riches would be his. But this would come at the sacrifice of faith, at the sacrifice of a humbled will, ever waiting on God's timing, the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care, God's provision, and God's guidance. And that was the issue. 
Can David trust in God now or not? This is the greatest test of faith that he had ever faced. And so David lets Saul exit the cave. And then something we might not expect. Verse 5 says, And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You know, we might wonder how it is that David felt guilty at this bit of evidence, which would prove that he could have killed Saul but refused. But we should be mindful of what this action signifies. David's cutting off a portion of the royal robe symbolized a transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. Furthermore, according to Numbers 15, all Israelite men were to wear tassels on the bottom of the robe. Numbers 15.39 says, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own desires. So cutting off the corner of Saul's robe was like David taking action to cut Saul off from the Lord's kingship, and this was not David's to do. So while he spared Saul's life, David made a symbolic statement to his men, and David immediately repented of it. That was wrong. He had no right to dishonor Saul in this way. Now Saul leaves the cave unaware of how close he came to death. There follows a remarkable confrontation between him and David. David went to the edge of the cave and called out after Saul. The cloth in his hand, David provides proof to Saul that he could have lifted up his hand to kill him. And then what follows is the longest recorded quote that we have of David in either First or Second Samuel. We won't read the entire quote, but we will notice several things. First of all, David tells Saul that God is not blessing him. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Indeed, what David wants Saul to know is that God can deliver you into my hand any time he wants to. You think that you're in a position of power, but you're not. God gave you into my hand. Now, second, David proclaims his own innocence. Verse 11 says, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David is not guilty of the slanderous accusations Saul has leveled against him. He tells them that all his actions have arisen out of his own evil mind, not out of what David has done. Third, David calls upon God to act. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You see, David is not saying that all this stuff never mattered. Saul is a wicked man, and he will face the judgment of God. But for his part, David will not lift up his hand against Saul. Fourth, David calls upon God to deliver him from Saul's hand. And by now, it must be clear to Saul that God will do precisely that. And so Saul responds. And before we look at his response, let's remember a passage that many of us have pondered over. And I'm reading from 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, says John. I do not say that we should pray for that. Now, this kind of talk constantly leads to the question of what is the unpardonable sin. Because we don't have the time to talk about this in full here, we might want to view this in the light of a parallel passage found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. There it reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And it is this that we see in Saul. 
worldly grief, the kind of sinning followed by worldly grief that will bring about no change in the trajectory of his life. He will be grieved because in a moment he will see matters for what they truly are. He is hunting David for no reason, and David poses no threat to him at all. But when this is over and Saul goes back to his normal ways of living, which is evil, he will again hunt David down. And now as Saul is about to leave, he acknowledges that David has only repaid him good for evil and then adds a final request. Verses 21 and 22 say, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul and his men went up to the stronghold. You know, David's final act to Saul is to promise him that when God makes him king, he will not harm Saul's family. Saul assumes that David might kill his entire family after he's dead, but David will do no such thing. What Saul does not know is that he and Jonathan have already made an oath. David would later fulfill that oath by taking Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, into his house and treating him as a man of honor in his household. Indeed, David will not lift up his hand against Saul. In all of this, we see David learning to trust in God. Even in the moments when his life is threatened and great evil is being done against him, he is learning not to run ahead of God and to take matters into his own hands. He will trust in the promises of God. Surely in time, God will act. The timing will be God's and not David. You know, if we are going to live lives of significance, we need to learn a vital lesson from David. While David takes all means to defend himself against Saul's attempts against him, He determines that he will not initiate retaliation or strike out at Saul at the appropriate time. For David, this is the life of faith. And for us, this is the example that David leaves us. We must learn to allow God to act in his own time and to be confident and trust in him. John, just one thing you said earlier. You said, but behind all his careful strategy is the steady hand of God. What does that mean when sometimes we have great plans, but maybe they're not God's plans? Yeah, I think we are called upon to plan. I mean, we can't just simply, you know, sit back and say, oh, God will do everything. God does do everything, but he invites us to be involved. But I think we need to anticipate that God breaks into our plans at any moment and changes it for his glory. I think that's the lesson. There are so many practical lessons we can learn from examining this story, but at the heart of it, it's really about having the kind of faith that rests in God's promises, especially when it seems more right to take matters into your own hands. When we're tempted to retaliate and take action against the evil that's being directed at us, are we willing to let God take control? I hope that today's message has blessed and encouraged you as we continue to learn how to lead lives of significance. Be sure to join us again tomorrow as we unpack 1 Samuel 25 in continuing this series with Dr. Neufeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Next month, Dr. Neufeld and a ministry team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in Delhi and Hyderabad. Two conferences will be held hosting hundreds of pastors representing multiple denominations and churches. 
Through these conferences, the hearts of these people will grow in their ability to study and effectively teach God's Word. Your gift this month toward these conferences in India would allow us to maximize the impact of our partnership with Back to the Bible India. Your gift would support pastors' participation and support the ongoing radio and online Bible teaching programs aired in India and across much of the surrounding region in Asia. Invest in Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.